Hello, everyone. My name is Nancy Porter, and in this session of Airs LA, I will be sharing with you selections from the June 12, 2023 issue of Time magazine. I need to remind you that you are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. So, from the June 12th issue, let's begin. This is from the brief section. Uh, it's titled, Is Social Media Safe? by Alice Park. The Surgeon General is calling social media use an urgent crisis for kids' mental health. Even a viral pandemic was not enough to unseat what U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vink Mervig sees as the defining public health crisis of our time. That designation, Dr. Murthy says, belongs to concerns about the mental health and well-being of Americans, especially among young people. On May 23rd, Murthy published an advisory warning that we don't know enough about social media, in particular how it is impacting children's emotional states, brain development, and social growth. I issued this advisory because this is an urgent crisis, Murthy tells Time. After analyzing existing studies on social media's effects and consulting with experts, Murthy says there aren't enough data yet to determine whether social media use is safe for children and adolescents. But with 95% of teens ages 13 to 17 and 40% of children ages 8 to 12 saying that they use a social media platform like Instagram or TikTok, Murthy issued a call to action to better understand what social media is doing to the mental health of America's young people. Murthy acknowledges that children gain some benefits. The platforms can make it easier to connect with others who share similar interests or experiences, which can help young people understand and process difficult events like loss and change. They can also expose them to new opportunities to learn about different places and ideas. But the negative effects of social media are becoming increasingly apparent, raising questions about how safe the overall experience is and whether the net effects are more bad than good. Studies have found that using social media can contribute to anxiety, depression, and lower self-esteem among children and teens, and expose them to harassment and abuse, Murphy's report says. Brain imaging research also suggests that excessive social media use could change the ways the brain in ways that mimic addiction. The advisory also outlines how parents, policymakers, researchers, and technology companies can and should come together to make social media safer for children. I 100% see this as a responsibility for policymakers and technology companies, he says. Any company that produces a product consumed by kids has a fundamental responsibility to ensure that it is safe. The U.S. government's role, he says, should be to establish safety standards for content and usage for technology companies to follow. But such standards haven't been required for the two decades during which social media platforms have become popular. The burden for ensuring that sites are safe and appropriate for children, therefore, largely falls on parents. We don't ask parents to inspect the brakes on cars that children ride in 
or the ingredients and medications that children use, or ask them to conduct chemical analyses of the paint used in toys made for children to make sure they're safe, says Murthy. We set standards and make sure that manufacturers meet them. That's what is missing here. The first step toward creating those standards, he says, is to conduct more studies to better understand how children and teens are using social media and how their experiences can be made less harmful to their mental health. A critical part of that effort rests with the technology companies, many of which have been reluctant or unwilling to share relevant data from their platforms. I hear from researchers all the time that they are not able to get full access to the data that they need to fully understand the impact that these platforms are having on children, says Murthy. As a parent myself, I don't want to feel that there is information hidden from me about the impact products my kids are using that may have on their mental health and well-being. This kind of data could also identify practices that technology and companies use to promote continued and excessive use of their platforms, such as likes, comments, and auto-scrolling. Studies show that prolonged engagement on social media often comes at the expense of other activities critical for children's health, like seat and socialization. But even without more data, Murthy says policymakers and companies can start making immediate changes to ensure that children aren't harmed by social media. These include creating and enforcing age minimums for accounts, and doing a better job of identifying potentially harmful content related to cyberbullying, harassment, and abuse, and keeping it off of children's feeds. I acknowledge that companies are trying to take steps to make platforms safer, but it's really not sufficient, says Murthy. Time matters. Children only have one childhood, and every day, every month, Every year matters in the life and development of a child. The bottom line is that we have not made enough progress, Murthy says. As a consequence, I worry about the mental health and well-being of our children. All right, next move on to the bulletin. Headline, What Erdogan's Victory Means for Turkey and the World. This is by Yasmin Sherhan. The Recep Tayyip Erdogan era lives on after the longtime Turkish leader won the May 28th presidential runoff against opponent challenger Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu. That Erdogan survived the biggest test to his leadership in 20 years is remarkable given the state of Turkey's economy and lingering public anger over the government's response to earthquakes in February that left at least 50,000 people dead. But he has retained his grip on a nation that can serve either as a bridge or an impediment close to home. For Turkey's 85 million people, Erdogan's win means a continuation of today, says Gallup Dalle, an associate fellow at the London-based Catham House think tank. Since first winning as a pious heartland populace in 2003, Erdogan has consolidated power through constitutional changes, 
eroded the country's democratic institutions, and jailed opponents and critics, many of them journalists. With five more years at the helm, it's unlikely that Erdogan will choose to reverse Turkey's democratic backsliding, even as the republic marks its 100th year. When autocrats face an unstable domestic context, they double down on repression, says Gonal Tall, a Turkey expert at the Middle East Institute. NATO's future. While the alliance's other members have condemned and imposed sanctions on Russia in the aftermath of its invasion of Ukraine, Turkey has continued to steer its own course with the country. In 2017, Ankara agreed to purchase an S-400 missile defense system from Moscow. Most controversially, Ankara continues to block Sweden from becoming NATO's 32nd member. Though analysts expect Erdogan to eventually lift Turkey's veto, as he finally did with Finland, it will be, pub- it will be only after leveraging public concessions. This is a boost for autocrats. Under Erdogan, Turkey has joined the ranks of the world's most prominent elected autocracies. But whereas some of these autocracies have been at loggerheads with the West, Turkey maintains a delicate balancing act. Whether that continues will largely depend on the United States and especially the European Union. Is the West ready to confront a more authoritarian Turkey? asks Tall, noting that Turkey hosts roughly 3.6 million Syrian refugees and has blocked them from crossing into Europe. Or are they going to keep this transactional relationship and say, as long as Erdogan keeps Syrian refugees in Turkey, we can work with him? All right, let's move on to the world section. Headline. How Everyday Iranians Backed the Revolt by K. Armin Serjoy. Revolutions do not happen only in the streets. Yet the outside world knows the uprising in Iran almost entirely through footage uploaded from camera phones, the thousands upon thousands chanting for the fall of the regime in cities and towns across the country and the regime answering with batons and shotguns. There has been no window into the kitchens and courtyards where the country's fate will be decided. I did not think a country could change so much in three months, says journalist K. Armin Serjoy, reflecting on returning to Tehran last September after a summer in Germany. Serjoy, who has covered his native country for more than two decades, was not allowed to work as a reporter while he remained in Iran. But he remembered what he saw. And since returning to Europe, he has written it down. And this is what he wrote. On an October night, at least 600 security forces are arrayed down a two-mile stretch of Tehran Pars Street that has been a focus of protests for weeks. Armor-clad police special forces hold intersections. Revolutionary guards on motorcycles swing clubs at protesters who stand their ground. Middle-aged besieges stand outside mosques and government buildings. The activists, meanwhile, are overwhelmingly young. 
many of the women let their hair flow free. Apart from the two sides, an even bigger group circulates, an almost unending sea of young families, elderly couples, and passers-by, some just walking up and down the street, some sitting in their cars in the traffic. They are not protesting anything, yet they brave the tear gas, the shouts to move along. They act as if it were just another evening, but they're also giving cover to protesters who disappear among them to escape the frenzied charges of security forces. This watchful sea, the silent majority known in Iran as the Gray Caste, fills space vacated by fleeing protesters, almost as if none were ever there. Whenever a plainclothes agent singles out a protester, cornering him or her until reinforcements arrive, the cars commence honking. Passers-by suddenly become immobile. Shouts of, let them go, rise to deafening levels, stunning the security forces, and many a time giving the protesters just enough time to slip away. The people on the sidewalks and in the cars, the people with responsibilities, with families to support, the people on whom the future of Iran will pivot, know how to bide their time, waiting for the protests to produce leadership, specific objectives, and definite plans, at which point they just might step in and risk what little the Islamic Republic has left them. Every night at 9 p.m. the shouts begin. From rooftops, balconies, and windows of dark rooms, women and men, and sometimes even children, huddled into the dark recesses to avoid inquisitive eyes, shout, Women! Life! Freedom! It started days after Masha Amini died in police custody, arrested for how she wore her headscarves. Sometimes the chanting goes on for an hour. In the middle-class Tehran neighborhood, a man asks a 19-year-old neighbor why he endangers his life every night by leading chants in the street and writing slogans on walls. The young man replies, since we were born, we've seen how the regime has been gradually sucking the life out of our parents with inflation price hikes, limitations on social and personal freedom. If I have to go, I prefer to go fast. A few nights later, the young man goes out to spray paint slogans and does not come home. His frantic parents search prisons, police stations, hospitals, and morgues the neighbor is moved, for now only as far as the window, where he joins the nightly shouting. When the time comes, he says darkly, I will avenge the kid. The regime is watched closely for evidence of weakness. The evidence is everywhere. Neighborhoods that historically supplied the militias that put down dissent have themselves become hotbeds of protests. But the regime is also ruthless. The death toll compiled by human rights groups, 506, by mid-December, does not take in the grievously wounded. Young women who have lost an eye to birdshot post their new looks proudly on Instagram. But 
their assailants speed away. On a cold December night, the security forces on Tehran Pars begin closing up shop at 8 p.m. The streets of major cities have seemingly been, to some extent, tamed. And yet, even as the number of protesters has fallen, the gray cast continues to show up to offer them cover. And stores that in previous years pulled down shutters at the first sign of trouble are still open. At one, a young man, out of breath from fleeing police, pauses to share his frustrations. The problem is there's no direction, no planning, he says. With the murder the regime is committing every night, the price is too high for what is becoming a blind revolt. And yet, every night, the windows still fly open and the chants begin. It's not over, says another protester, a literature student in her early 20s. The fire is still there. It's what in Farsi we call fire under the ashes. All right, let's move on to the world section. Headline, Is Everyone Going Back to the Office Yet? by Alana Samuels. You might have thought that by mid-2023, with the pandemic officially over, people would be getting back to the office. But the share of workers in the office full-time dropped to 42% in the second quarter of 2023, down from 49% in the first quarter, down to the Flex report, which collects insights from more than 4,000 companies employing more than 100 million people globally. Meanwhile, the share of offices with hybrid work arrangements hit 30% in the quarter, up from 20% the previous quarter. It certainly looks like hybrid is gaining share, says Robert Sadow, the CEO and co-founder of Scoop Technologies, which puts out the Flex Report. Work is moving toward what Sadow calls structured hybrid in which there are a set number of days that people are required to come into the office. The average minimum days required is 2.53, with both two days and three days being popular. Tuesday is the most popular day required, followed by Wednesday and Thursday. Few offices require a Friday presence and only 24 require a Monday presence. Of course, not all companies are going to accept that they can't get employees to return to offices for which they have to keep paying rent. Tesla mandates full-time office attendance. J.P. Morgan Chase requires senior staff to be in the office full-time. And Apple is reportedly tracking employees' attendance and threatening action against staff who don't come in. Workers at Disney are required to go to the office four days a week though thousands signed a petition protesting the policy. Opponents argue that return-to-office policies disadvantage people of color and women who are discriminated against in person and make life more challenging for working parents who don't want to waste hours commuting and can't afford nearby homes in today's housing market. Workplace flexibility differs dramatically depending on the company's industry, size, and location. Nearly two in three companies that have fewer than 500 employees are fully flexible, meaning that employees can be remote if they want, according to the Flex Report. 
By contrast, only 13% of companies with more than 50,000 employees are fully flexible, though 66% do allow for structured hybrid work. States in the West and Northeast parts of the U.S. have the highest share of companies that are fully flexible, with Oregon, Washington, and Colorado topping the list. Arkansas, Alabama, and Louisiana had the highest share of companies that are in the office full-time. There are other signs, in addition to the Flex Report, that five-day-a-week returning to office plans are not succeeding. Office occupancy in the top 10 most populous U.S. cities was just 49.9% of pre-pandemic levels the first week of May, according to data from CAST Systems, which tracks key card swipes across 2,600 buildings. One result of that trend is that consumer spending has plummeted in cities like New York, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C., while home values in exurbs and suburbs have continued to surge. The commercial real estate market hasn't completely tanked yet because many companies are signed into long-term leases. What's more, the format of structured hybrid work means employers can't dramatically shrink their spaces yet. If every employee comes in the same three days a week, the company still needs the same amount of space it did before the pandemic. Companies now just pay for empty office space on the remaining days. The share of days worked from home appears to have stabilized at 30% about five times what it was before the pandemic, according to research by Nicholas Bloom, a Stanford professor who studies remote work. That could be a good thing for employees and employers. People who work from home are more productive and one-third less likely to quit than those who don't, Bloom finds. As technology advances, Bloom expects the share of people working from home to trend upward as technology advances. With better video calls, augmented reality, and virtual reality, there may start to be less of a difference between working in an office and being at home, he says. The office world that appeared unchangeable before the pandemic is different now. That much, at least, is pretty clear. All right, let's move now to an essay titled The Only Way Forward After Pulse by Brandon Wolf, an LGBTQ activist and the author of a book titled A Place for Us. Growing up in rural Oregon, I often dreamed of a world where I could be all of myself. A world where I didn't feel the nagging societal pressure to be black enough for some spaces and white enough for other spaces. A world that saw my queerness not as a deal-breaker, but as a superpower. Pulse Nightclub embodied all that for me. After packing two suitcases and running away to the refuge of Orlando, I found what I had been looking for. The spinning disco balls dared all of us to dance like no one was watching. The beats radiating from the floorboards unearthed our authenticity, 
nudging us into rhythmic protest against a world that had always told us to uncross our legs, stiffen our wrists, and deepen our voices. Inside those walls, we were normal. When I close my eyes at night, I can remember the moments when that normal shattered into a million shards on June 12, 2016. I can still feel it, hear it, and see it. The vibrant poster above the urinal. The cup teetering on the edge of the sink, perched precariously as if it might tumble to the tiles below. The first cracks of gunfire from an assault rifle. The stench of blood and smoke wafting into the room. Hours later, the world awoke to our horror. Forty-nine dead, fifty-three injured, LGBTQ communities across the globe reeled with the jarring reminder that no space is safe when your very humanity is perpetually up for debate. The celebrations over marriage equality and surging social acceptance were suddenly cleaved by violence. Overnight, ours was a community under siege, picking up the broken pieces of the nation's deadliest attack an LGBTQ people in history. This community remains under siege today. Florida, just years removed from that horrifying tragedy, has become synonymous with the breathtaking assaults on LGBTQ civil rights sweeping the nation. From book censorship to health care prohibitions on trans youth to bathroom bans, Governor Ron DeSantis and his right-wing allies have ushered in a raft of dehumanizing policies designed to build political careers at the expense of our civil liberties. These laws are all animated by the same dangerous ideology that has long been used to rationalize discrimination and violence against LGBTQ people, that we are a contagion whose spread can be stopped only by wielding the power of government to censor us out of society. This utterly absurd argument is peddled alongside promises to protect the children from us in an effort to force us back into that makeshift closet. The demonization of LGBTQ people isn't new. Whether it was the police raids that led to the Stonewall riots or the HIV-AIDS crisis that fueled up the ACT UP movement, this community has had its back against the wall countless times before. And at each pivotal point in history, we blazed the new path forward. We willed a better, more inclusive future into existence by sharing our stories and choosing radical love over the ferocious hate threatening to consume us. In the wake of the tragedy at Pulse seven years ago, Orlando faced a similar critical choice. We could succumb to the TV pundits. We could beat the drums of war. Or we could choose love. We could embody the spirit of Pulse itself, unapologetically becoming a city that dares everyone to dance as if no one is watching. We chose this latter. We chose love over hate. 
When I left home, I didn't expect to fall in love with a new community. I never thought I'd watch that community traverse the flames of militarized hatred. And I could not have imagined that our struggle to put the pieces black together might demonstrate that when hate tries to terrorize us into submission and tear us apart at the seams, there is another path. We simply must choose to walk it. All right, we move now to the technology section. Title, Survival of the Fittest. The evolutionary case that humanity is already on its way to giving up its own dominance by Dan Hendricks, director of the Center of AI Safety, a San Francisco-based research nonprofit. A broad coalition of AI experts recently released a brief public statement warning of the risk of extinction from AI. There are many different ways in which artificial intelligence might become serious dangers to humanity, and the exact nature of the risks is still debated. But imagine a CEO who acquires an AI assistant. They begin by giving it simple, low-level assignments, like drafting emails and suggesting purchases. As the AI improves over time, it progressively becomes much better at these things than their employees. So the AI gets promoted. Rather than drafting emails, it now has full control of the inbox. Rather than suggesting purchases, it's eventually allowed to access bank accounts and buy things automatically. At first, the CEO carefully monitors the work. But as months go by without any errors, the AI receives less oversight and more autonomy in the name of efficiency. It occurs to the CEO that since the AI is so good at these tasks, it should take on a wider range of more open-ended tasks, design the next model and a product line, plan a new marketing campaign, or exploit security flaws in a competitor's computer system. The CEO observes how businesses with more restricted uses of AI are falling behind and is further incentivized to hand over more power to the AI with even less oversight. Companies that resist these trends don't stand a chance. Eventually, even the CEO's role is largely nominal. The economy is now run by autonomous AI corporations, and humanity realizes too late that we've lost control. These same competitive dynamics will apply not just to companies, but also to nations. As the autonomy of AIs increases, so will their control over the key decisions that influence society. If this happens, our future will be highly dependent on the nature of these AI agents. The good news is that we have a say in shaping what they will be like. The bad news is that Darwin's laws do too. Though we think of natural selection as a biological phenomenon, its principles guide much more, from economies 
to technologies. The evolutionary biologist Richard Lewontin proposed that natural selection will take hold in any environment where three conditions are present. One, there are differences between individuals. Two, characteristics are passed on to future generations. And three, the fittest variants propagate more successfully. Consider the content recommendation algorithms used by social media platforms and streaming services. When particularly addictive algorithms hook users, they result in higher engagements and screen time. These more effective algorithms are consequently selected and further fine-tuned, while algorithms that fail to capture attention are discontinued. This fosters the survival of the most addictive dynamic. Platforms that refuse to use addictive methods are simply outcompeted by platforms that do, leading to a race to the bottom among competitors that has already caused massive harm to society. In the biological realm, evolution is a slow process. For humans, it takes nine months to create the next generation and around 20 years of schooling and parenting to produce any functional adults. But scientists have observed meaningful evolutionary changes in species with rapid reproduction late, like fruit flies, in fewer than 10 generations. Unconstrained by biology, AIs could adapt and therefore evolve even faster than fruit flies do. There are three reasons this should worry us. The first is that selection effects make AIs difficult to control. Whereas AI researchers once spoke of designing AIs, they now speak of just steering them. And even our ability to steer is slipping out of our grasp as we let AIs teach themselves and increasingly act in ways that even their creators do not fully understand. In advanced artificial neural networks, we understand the inputs that go into the system, but the output emerges from a black box with a decision-making process largely indecipherable to humans. Second, evolution tends to produce selfish behavior. Amoral competition among AIs may select for undesirable traits. AIs that successfully gain influence and provide economic value will predominate, replacing AIs that act in a more narrow and constrained manner, even if this comes at the cost of lowering guardrails and safety measures. As an example, most businesses follow laws. But in situations where stealing trade secrets or deceiving regulators turns out to be highly lucrative and difficult to detect, a business that engages in such selfish behavior will most likely outperform its more principled competitors.
Selfishness doesn't require malice or even sentience. When an AI automates a task and leaves a human jobless, this is selfish behavior without any intent. If competitive pressures continue to drive AI development, we shouldn't be surprised if they act selfishly too. The third reason is that evolutionary pressure will likely ingrain AIs with behavior that promotes self-preservation. Skeptics of AI risks often ask, couldn't we just turn the AI off? There are a variety of practical challenges here. The AI could be under the control of a different nation or a bad actor. Or AIs could be integrated into vital infrastructure, like power grids or the internet. When embedded into these critical systems, the cost of disabling them may prove too high for us to accept since we would become dependent on them. AIs could become embedded in our world in ways that we can't easily reverse. But natural selection poses a more fundamental barrier. We will select against AIs that are easy to turn off, and we will come to depend on AIs that we are less likely to turn off. These strong economic and strategic pressures to adopt the systems that are most effective mean that humans are incentivized to cede more and more power to AI systems that cannot be reliably controlled, putting us on a pathway toward being supplanted as the Earth's dominant species. There are no easy surefire solutions to our predicament. A possible starting point would be to address the remarkable lack of regulation of the AI industry, which currently operates with little oversight, much of the research taking place in the dark. Regulation needs to be done proactively rather than reactively. If something goes wrong in this domain, we may not get the chance to fix it. The problem, however, is that competition within and between nations pushes us against any common sense safety measures. AI is big business. In 2015, total corporate investment in AI was $12.7 billion. By 2021, this figure had grown to $93.5 billion. As the race toward powerful AI systems quickens, corporations and governments are increasingly incentivized to reach the finish line first. We need research on AI safety progress as quickly as research on improving AI capabilities. There aren't many market incentives for this, so governments should offer robust funding as soon as possible. The future of humanity is closely intertwined with the progression of AI. It is therefore a disturbing realization 
that natural selection may have more sway over it than we do. But as of now, we are still in command. It is time to take this threat seriously. Once we hand over control, we won't ever get it back. And the last article for today is titled, Don't Call It an Arms Race, by Katja Grace, lead researcher at AI Impacts, an AI safety project at the nonprofit Machine Intelligence Research Institute. Rushing forward on AI could be the losing move for all of humanity. The window of what AI can't do seems to be contracting week by week. Machines can now write elegant prose and useful code, ace exams, conjure exquisite art, and predict how proteins will fold. Experts are scared. Last summer, I surveyed more than 550 AI researchers, and nearly half of them thought that high-level machine intelligence, if built, would lead to impacts that had at least a 10% chance of being extremely bad. In other words, human extinction. On May 30th, hundreds of AI scientists, along with the CEOs of top AI labs like OpenAI, DeepMind, and Anthropic, signed a statement urging caution on AI. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. Why think that? The simplest argument is that progress in AI could lead to the creation of superhumanly smart artificial beings with goals that conflict with humanity's interests and the ability to pursue them autonomously. Think of a species that is to Homo sapiens what Homo sapiens is to chimps. Yet, while many fear that AI could mean the end of humanity, some worry that if we, usually used to mean researchers in the West or even researchers in a particular lab or company, don't sprint forward someone less responsible will. If a safer lab pauses, our future might be in the hands of a more reckless lab. For example, one in China that doesn't try to avoid substantial risks. This argument analogizes the AI situation to a classic arms race. Let's say I want to beat you in a war. We both spend money to build more weapons, but without anyone gaining a relative advantage. In the end, we've spent a lot of money and gotten nowhere. It might seem crazy, but if one of us doesn't race, we lose. We're trapped. But the AI situation is different in crucial ways. Notably, in the classic arms race, a party could always theoretically get ahead and win. But with AI, the winner may be advanced AI itself. This can make rushing the losing move. 
Other game-changing factors in AI include how much safety is bought by going slower, how much one party's safety investments reduce the risk for everyone, whether coming second means a small loss or a major disaster, how much the danger rises if, traditional, if additional parties pick up their speed, and how others respond. The real game is more complex than simple models can suggest. In particular, if individual, uncoordinated incentives lead to the sort of perverse situation described by an arms race, the winning move, where possible, is to leave the game. And in the real world, we can coordinate our way out of such traps. We can talk to each other. We can make commitments and observe their adherence. We can lobby governments to regulate and make agreements. With AI, the payoffs for a given player can be different from the payoffs for society as a whole. For most of us, it may not matter much if Meta beats Microsoft, but researchers and investors chasing fame and fortune might care much more. Talking about AI as an arms race strengthens the narrative that they need to pursue their interests. The rest of us should be wary of letting them be the ones to decide. A better analogy for AI than an arms race might be a crowd standing on thin ice with abundant riches on the far shore. They could all reach them if they step carefully. But one person thinks, if I sprint, then the ice may break and we'd all fall in, but I'll bet I can sprint more carefully and faster than Bob, and he might go for it. On AI, we could be in the exact opposite sides of a race. The best individual action could be to move slowly and cautiously. And collectively, we should not let people throw the world away in a perverse race to destruction, especially when routes to coordinating our escape have scarcely even been explored. And that concludes my sharing with you of Time Magazine, June 12, 2023 issue. Again, I must close by reminding you that you have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you.